0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the We just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Miles Sparr is a leading authority in integrative men's health as an author, teacher, and researcher. He's board certified in internal medicine, having graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School. He completed, he completed fellowships in health services research at UCLA, where he earned a master's in public health, and in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And now, he is working alongside one of my favorite functional medicine doctors, Dr. Frank Lipman. Miles, welcome.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So great to have you. Uh, our, our dear mutual friend, Dr. Frank Lipman, who you're working with, speaks so highly of you, which goes such a l- very long way with me. So it's so great to finally have you on the show.
1: Uh, yeah, I've been a big fan for a long time and Frank is amazing.
0: Frank, Frank is amazing. And we all know his great personal journey to, uh, the world of, of health and wellness and functional medicine. And for those tuning in, we've got a whole host of episodes with Frank, which we'll, we'll leave in the show notes if you want to check out, but we're here to talk about you. And I want to start, you have an incredible personal journey and, and talk about your journey, in health and wellness, and more specifically, what led you to integrative medicine, uh, precision medicine, if you will.
1: Sure. So I started out as a regular, very academically oriented physician. I went to University of Michigan for med school, which at that time was fairly conservative and really trained you to be a specialist. You know, it was kind of an embarrassment to the faculty if you went into primary care, you know, let alone something like holistic type practice. So it was very geared toward that. Um, but that didn't really resonate with me, and so I was a little frustrated, but I went along with it and actually started going to radiation oncology But to do and, and got a residency in radiation oncology. But to do that, you have to do a year of primary care medicine or internal medicine or some kind of general internship year to learn basic medicine before you jump into such a specialized field. So I matched um, in Miami for radiation oncology, and I did this one year of primary care at Kaiser in San Francisco. And this was um, in the 90s. So it was a height of HIV pre drugs to treat HIV. It was kind of a crazy time to be in medicine. Um, But it was a time when you could really develop very close relationships with patients. And there I found not only was I developing these amazing relationships with patients vis-a-vis HIV, but we were seeing general bread and butter primary care patients in the outpatient clinic. And I hadn't been trained to do any of that stuff. I had been trained to treat weird, crazy diseases and treat patients in the hospital with lots of medications. But I hadn't been trained to actually talk to people in an outpatient setting about how do you stay well? How do you deal with your weight issues or your depression issues or prevent problems, God forbid? So I just got very, very frustrated with that. So I ended up deciding I need to really learn more about this and do more Primary care type work. So even though I did uh, a couple of years of the radonc I decided that isn't for me. I went back and did my primary care training and in internal medicine, and still found in residency that it was very geared toward this inpatient acute care experience. I said, "This this isn't working. We're not training docs right. We got to fix the healthcare system." I'm going to get a master's in public health and look how do we fix the whole system. So I got a master's in public health, learned how to do clinical research. How do you really measure how are we doing as a healthcare system? This is now the time of like Hillary Clinton's trying to reform healthcare, so it was an exciting time to be looking at big picture healthcare system. And then I went and worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers, a big consulting firm, to ostensibly help clients improve the quality of care they were giving. And all they were really doing was having me help people save money. Um, so again, just did that for a year felt like, okay, no one cares about improving quality or improving the way care is being delivered. Could I knew nothing of integrative or functional medicine, so I didn't even know that was an option. I just knew what I was doing wasn't really what was needed by at least half the people that I was seeing. So I said, screw this. If all I know how to do is treat really severe illness and I know how to work on healthcare systems, I'm going to go where it's most needed around the world. And I joined Doctors Without Borders and worked with them internationally, which was amazing. enabled me to do all of these things with really acute illness. So I did that on and off for several years in the field and on the board of directors, an amazing organization. Um, But what side impact that had on me is I saw in all these parts of the world, people were thriving a little bit better than they should have been before we got there. And what I mean is they needed medications we were bringing for sure. They needed some of the Western medicine for sure. These are people with TB and HIV and serious problems. But for the same kind of stage of disease in the US, they were doing better even before we started them on their meds. Um, and I, I couldn't figure out why, because it didn't match what I was taught, which was you got to give the meds, you got to give the meds. And I started looking, what else are they doing that's keeping them around, thriving to a better extent than I would have expected and while waiting for the medications? And I saw they weren't eating crappy foods. They were more active, because they had to be to get water. They had to walk a mile. They were having close family relationships and connections and a lot of support around whatever clinical issue they were dealing with. They had a sense of spirituality and meaning in their life, things that I hadn't seen as strong a presence of in the States. So I came back to the States, um, worked, did kind of humanitarian medicine at a free clinic in LA, but really dedicated myself to learning what else should I be putting in my toolkit here? Because clearly there's a lot more to health and thriving than I had learned. Um, I sought out Mary Hardy. I don't know if you've had her on your podcast, brilliant botanical medicine expert who I knew who was helping me at this free clinic. I was like, tell me, I'm an academic, I need the science. I don't wanna just you know, sit, do things. I don't wanna just tell people things that are not rooted in some evidence. Tell me how do I find out the science to what the power of meaning is, the power of, of meditation or stress management, of food and of supplements and all of these things. So I ended up doing the University of Arizona Fellowship in Integrative Medicine. I also did some training in functional medicine, but it just really led me down this path to basically expand my toolkit. You know, which I, I wish all doctors would do and say, yeah, there's a role for prescriptions. God knows somebody has a really bad infection or meningitis or whatever, or even heart disease, give them medications. But there's a lot more that I saw outside of the U.S. that we needed to learn about. It, and that's what I did.
0: I love it. And our listeners hear this all the time, but I'll say it again. You know, we, we at Mind Buddy Green, believe in mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. All connected one word, my buddy green. And what's interesting to hear you speak sounds like you're talking, you know, the secret sauce, if you will. You're touching on the emotional, mental, and spiritual. And it's important to be rooted in science. And so, something you said I thought was so interesting, you know, hearing a lot of blue zones, but not blue zones in terms of diet necessarily, blue zones in terms of mental, spiritual, emotional, and something you said, the power of meaning. So what, this, talk about what, what does science say about the power of, of having meaning in one's life?
1: Yeah, well, the blue zones show that, right? Dan Buettner showed one of those power nine in the blue zones is identifying your purpose, that sense of icky guy, because Okinawa right one of the blue zones. And so they showed in his, you know, it's epidemiologic data, but it's very respected data that he's published shows people who had a real clear sense of purpose added seven years to life expectancy. Seven years to life expectancy, that having that sense of purpose was as important as quitting smoking, as exercising. So there's clearly something physiologic happening when you wake up in the morning and have a real intention of what you want to do with that day. Um, it's not, you know I don't know that we understand the exact mechanisms, although we're beginning to, because we know that there's a real connection in terms of, epigenetics and what genes get turned on and off based on mindfulness and nervous system and having strong senses of what your intentions are. And that can affect certain genes getting turned on and off, which certainly could promote longevity, decrease inflammation, help with detoxification. You know, all that's being laid out. Those are the hypotheses of how that mechanism could be. But yeah, it's very rooted in science that just having that sense of, okay, what do I want to do with my life or even just what do I want to get done today that isn't just reacting to things actually impacts your health
0: so you mentioned longevity so you know as we think about aging if we want to age well we want to increase our health span because I think everyone would agree you don't want to just increase the years you want quality of life uh, you know you've you made that great point of you're looking at, at outcomes of people who get seriously ill. And there's, there's a difference between quality of life. They're, they're eventually getting on the same medication that, that they potentially, or eventually, depending on your view on that need, but someone is doing that later in life. So there's, maybe they, you know, maybe they, maybe both, if you're looking at the, the person in the U S and the person in uh, said healthier country, maybe they're both dying at age 85, but one person gets on the meds at 83 and the person here in the U S gets on the meds at 72. Uh so, with all that said, what are the things you think we should be doing now, regardless of age, to ensure we're setting ourselves up for success as we think about health span? And maybe one way to think about it I know it's so hard to generalize, and I always try to get because <laughs> we're so unique. Maybe it Maybe one way to think about it is by decade. You know, in our twenties, we should be thinking about this, and then thirties and forties, and so on. But I'll, I'll pause there. How
1: should we be thinking about increasing our health span today? Great question. Yeah, and we can get into the decades in a minute, but let's start with kind of for everybody. I think we need to recognize we are in twenty twenty two. Right. This is an me. This is the most exciting time to be practicing medicine. And then, you know, the compliment to that is to be a patient. Um, and what that means is you can have so much more control over your health um, and use for, and I say patients purposely because you can use a care team as resources rather than as dictators. And I think that's overall what we need to be doing. We need to be using data. I'm, for, By the way, I was an undergraduate economics major, so I'm very into data and numbers and all that, right? But nowadays, we can be using data about our health, our risks, our genes, trackers, our you know, how we're sleeping, all these things, to identify what we personally, what Jason needs to do versus what Miles needs to be doing, and then tracking when we make behavior changes, what impacts that's having on what matters to us. So it's kind of three steps. It's data, it's tracking interventions of behavior, and knowing what matters to you, not your health, but what do you want your health for, and how are these tweaks you're making in health-related metrics affecting your getting close to that goal? And then using a care team to really help you with the knowledge you need to know what should you be testing out? What do your biomarkers mean? What do your test results or your genetics mean? And how does that affect what you should be trying out? So that's the big picture. We need to be much more proactive. You know, people say like, be the CEO of your health. I don't know what, it, you know, I kind of hate that expression, but it's kind of true. It's like, don't abdicate that job to somebody else. So that's the big picture of where right now you can do that, but you need to be knowledgeable, proactive, and I know your listeners are, so it's a perfect preaching to the choir audience here, um, to really to really figure out what you should be doing to be achieving your goals and let, let health be the most important tool you have to achieve those. And by a decade, I would say, you know, 20s, you know, I have kids who are almost 17, so I don't know that I could expect much of people, it, just a few years from their age, doing a lot in this vein of being kind of proactive. But... Um, and you're much more resilient in your twenties. So you probably can eat the standard American diet and be just fine, but at least, um, don't do it, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, I think probably the most important thing to be doing in your twenties is staying physically active because, you know, most people in their twenties aren't gonna get strict with their diet and they're not gonna probably sleep as much as they should. But I would say number one would be physical activity. Number two would be developing a sense of how to manage stress because those are habits that really need to be developed early on and that will serve you for that health span goal your whole life. I mean, we know if the, if we could put physical activity as a pill, you know, it would be a blockbuster um, because it just does wonders for ev- brain and body, right? So, And then I guess the third part is, which I think 20 people in their 20s are pretty good, is that sense of connection that you talked about, that making sure you're staying connected. We learned through the pandemic how vital that is. So those are the things I would say in your 20s. And then once you get into your 30s, really starting to look at, okay, what is going on health-wise that could interfere with me achieving my goals? 30s is all about, like, what are my goals? What do I want to achieve in my life? Now I got to get focused. You know, I'm in my 30s. I can't play around anymore. Do I want a family? Do I want to be a better spouse, a better partner, a better child? Do I want to be a better athlete? Do I want to excel in sports and do some kind of uh, PR, personal best? Do I want to be really sharp and get a bunch of promotions and be as mentally sharp as possible? What really matters to you? And then do some research with a health coach or your clinician or whoever you're seeing that can help advise you. What do, What's the best diet, supplements, exercise, stress management, what kind of things could potentially help me with that endpoint and start incorporating that kind of thing. Um, And then I think once you start getting your forties, it's about looking at your risks. So then it's really starting to say, okay, I, I need to make sure it's about prevention even more so than probably early on, really starting to look at what are some things that could be coming down the road that I need to worry about. So really getting those genetic tests done to see, Not what your destiny, because we know through epigenetics, your genes aren't your destiny, but they're really important in identifying what you should be focusing on versus somebody else and and starting to track some biomarkers of heart health or whatever you're at risk for based on your family history, your genes, your personal history, Um, and starting to get more serious about attenuating those risks. Again, using your healthcare team as kind of coaches to advise you and then trying out different things. And then I'd say in your fifties, it's when you're really implementing some of those prevention techniques and using that's when that's probably the biggest population I see. I focus on performance, personalized medicine, and that's it's the fifties is really when I see is where I see most of my patients. I would say, because they're like, okay, I already had a rift of some sort. I had either myself had a little chest pain and it turned out to be a panic attack, but I was scared or my PSA, my prostate screening tests went up or my buddy had a heart attack or my belly fat is like, what's going on here? You know, suddenly this just popped out something, or their spouse is like, you're being a jerk and you need to not be as reactive. You need to control your stress. That rift seems to happen in fifties. I see more men than women, but it happens for anybody. It's like, okay, what I'm doing isn't working in some aspect. It's affecting the people around me or my performance whether it's sexually, athletically, physically, psychologically, emotionally, what do I do differently? And that's when I think the trackers can be really helpful. So looking at your sleep, if you can afford to get a tracking device, great, at least assessing or writing down when you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, looking at Your stress level, if you can get, again, a tracker to help measure that with heart rate variability, and we can talk more about all that stuff later, great. But at least figuring out a way to know what does stress feel like in your body and get to know when you're stressed and what you could do to attenuate that. Trying out different apps for meditation or breath work or prayer, journaling, whatever it is. What can you be doing around your diet and supplements? So just trying, again, very consciously, proactively different things to tweak what your concern might not be working for you.
0: Well said. And as I hear you speak, I can only speak to up to age 47 because that, that's what I am. But what you described was kind of like a, a tea for my journey. You know, I go back to my 20s. I, I was living mostly in, in New York City. Uh, I went out all the time. I stayed out way too late. I drank way too much. But I exercised all the time. I had a great, a great large group of friends that I played basketball with in college and then went to high school and college with, and we went out all the time and I was, you know, pretty eight, pretty, eight, you know, steak and martinis and too many martinis at 4am and all the time, uh, oh, I, I, I had, I don't have, I had a very good time, too good of a time, but, 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 but you know, it was in my twenties and I would go in for my occasionally occasional blood work, everything was fine. I felt good. Um 30s, things started to catch up a little bit. Uh had a kidney stone, which was very, very painful. Uh, probably a little too young for that. And then I discovered, you know, what I, <laughs> my philosophy on diet was quite different than I was based, I was having cottage cheese with Cinnamon and a ton of Splenda every morning for breakfast. The cinnamon was good. At least... <laughs> it was good. I got, the, I got the cinnamon, but like the pound of cottage cheese and probably like the, you know, the, I was pouring on Splenda. And even back then, this is a long time ago, the doctor was like, a very Western doctor. He's like, you know, maybe that was uh, problematic for you. Uh, and then, you know, later in my 30s, had, debilitating back pain uh you know it led to my discovering yoga and then eventually uh, founding my muddy green and so that's when things started i could get away with it until i couldn't and then in my 40s starting to look at risks. you know my father died of heart disease i went to frank i said let's get a little bit more sophisticated around testing beyond like you know the once a year blood pressure cholesterol and then we just discovered i had ridiculously high homocysteine it was 63. yeah and then frank put me on a cocktail of b vitamins which we of course created here at my money green it's called methylation support plus and and i went from 63 to a range between 12 and 15. oh my gosh wow through supplementing and that was like led to my journey of supplementation and
1: personalization and checking your mthfr gene exactly
0: i'm I'm the gene and i got the double c677t and mthfr we've talked about on the the show like it's not it's not just about homocysteine it's about longevity it's about aging it's tied to everything uh it's almost like a flywheel and like half the population has it and frank even said it's bigger than the gene like methylation is tied
1: to everything oh yeah detox cancer and lots of stuff so i want to start
0: there like in, in methylation i don't think it's like a passion of mine
1: because i was
0: like the poster child for like not methylating properly so it's spend a moment like how do you think about methylation and the role it plays in longevity
1: yeah well i think a lot of it's around detox so um you know methylation i'm sure your listeners know it's just a carbon and three hydrogens right so it's just a little group that of of uh compounds that activate a lot of things especially b vitamins but also turn on and off genes so they actually affect upstream from where a gene the active part of the gene starts what we call upstream from there a little bit away from where the most important part of the gene that actually decides what protein is going to get made there's a little attachment area for that methyl group to actually dictate if that gene is going to be activated, if that protein is going to be made. So if that gene gets turned on and off. So when we talk about epigenetics, which means we can actually turn on and off genes, right? I'm sure all your listeners have heard through everything from mindful practice to your diet and supplements, you can affect better genes being turned on and bad genes getting turned off. That all happens through methylation. That's the mechanism. So obviously that affects longevity because it affects the healthier genes getting turned on and the unhealthy genes getting turned off. So that affects everything from oncogenes, genes that can promote cancer to anti-inflammatory genes and tumor suppressor type genes. But I think a big other direct way is detox. A lot of people don't realize that methylation and the MTHFR and COMPT as well, another gene that's really involved, that's associated, has a lot to do with proper clearing out crap from our bodies. And if we don't clear out the crap from our bodies and if we have other genes that don't suit us well, like you know with glutathione and things like that, then you're at higher risk for inflammation, autoimmune conditions, cancer. So it's, yeah, it's important
0: it's so critical too and what people always ask me is how did you feel i i said i felt fine i felt nothing like you know it's like the silent versus like you have other things going on that are potentially because at that levels it's actually potentially catastrophic in terms of a blood clot aneurysm like i remember talking about frank was like i'll give you our listeners have heard this but i'll repeat it i think it's so important i didn't go to dr google immediately i don't know why because usually i do uh he said, I'm going to messenger you over supplements. It, it wasn't like we live in New York. We both lived in New York at the time. You know, I get them the next day. I'm going to messenger them over to you. <laughs> because he said, I think it's a mistake. It's so high, I think it's a mistake. And it wasn't, I
1: I took the test again. Good for him. Yeah, that made you perk up your ears, yeah. Yeah, and like,
0: it is a J-curve in terms of risk. The higher the number goes, if you think about like catastrophic blood clotting, whether it's an aneurysm or pulmonary embolism or just all sorts of bad, you don't want it. So at any rate, I'm very thankful. I love Frank uh, and methylation is just an important issue, whether it's sky high like mine, just in general, if you're concerned about longevity, you gotta think about methylation. Right. And so you mentioned wearables and you wrote a great piece of my buddy Green about this. Um, and I think, you know, as I think about wearables and as I wear my wearables, I got my whoop, I got my aura. I'm experimenting with, it's not a wearable, I guess it's a wearable for your mattress. I'm experimenting with, with eight sleep right now, uh, which cools the bedding. Um, you know, some of the things you mentioned, heart rate variability, some of the things I pay attention to, on, on all the wearables I wear. I look at HRV, I look at resting heart rate. I look at respiratory rate. Uh, what's your take on all the things we can look at and wear, and what should we pay attention to? Yeah. How do they become, because one thing you're wearing something and you look at numbers, but then you don't have any actionable insights.
1: Right. Exactly. That's the mistake most people make. And that's what I wrote about. So, yeah, definitely encourage people to read the blog post I put in there with your amazing editors made it really glorious. Um, so the biggest mistake people make is they'll get a wearable. Maybe they'll even get it as a gift, but maybe they'll go out and buy one themselves. Like you mentioned, or a ring or a Whoopin or a Fitbit or a Garmin. And they'll look at it, and it's kind of, oh, this is interesting. I get crap sleep, or I get great sleep, or I don't know what this heart rate variability is, but it looks okay. And they kind of look at it for a couple weeks, and then it loses interest. But it needs to be a tool. So these are really powerful if you use them as tools to figure out, okay, I'm going to use this as a marker of where I'm at now. What's my baseline? And I'm not going to necessarily compare it with my buddies. I'm going to compare it to myself and say, okay... You know my sleep is this and i know that i don't feel as rested as i should or i feel like i should get better sleep so let me tweak things to try and work on my sleep so i'm measuring the sleep like with the aura or the Whoop, by looking at how much deep sleep i'm getting how much REM sleep i'm getting those are probably the most important two parts of your sleep not just your overall hours because you need your deep sleep to rest physically you need your REM sleep to rest brain-wise creatively and for your hippocampus and all that and then start tweaking things try shutting off all the the lights and covering all the blue lights or try going to bed at a different time or shutting your pie hole and not eating three hours before bed or not looking at a video screen within an hour of bed. Try a different sleep, what we call sleep hygiene tweaks, cooling your mattress like you're doing (laughs) to see Looking at that measure from that wearable, what is making the difference? And again, for you, it's going to be different than your buddy, but at least you'll get to know, okay, I really need to not eat three hours before bedtime that, or not drink, whatever it is, alcohol. So use them as measures to then make behavior changes and to figure out which behavior changes work best for you. That's, that's my biggest tip.
0: And I think, you know, an important call you just made for those wearing an aura ring or tracking sleep, it, it's not just the, it's not what you're looking for in terms of total hours, because there are lots of things you can look at with sleep when you look at a tracker. Specifically, if you're going to pay attention to a couple of things, pay attention to deep sleep, pay attention to REM sleep, know your baseline and pay attention to those two. It's not because what I found personally is sometimes I could sleep seven hours and be in the the green, so to speak, on deep and REM. Sometimes they could sleep eight and a half and be in the red in one of them. But you want to be in the green. So it's not quantity. It's it's you want to look at
1: those two specifically. Absolutely. Exactly. And a great example, for example, is the snooze button. Um, Snooze buttons are evil, people listening to me. (laughs) And they're evil because of your REM sleep. And you'll see that. You'll see that you've interrupted your own REM sleep just Let your, you know, if you need to set an alarm, it's great. If you don't need to set an alarm, you just wake up. If you need to set an alarm, set it for the time you absolutely have to get up. Don't set it for 10, 20, 30 minutes before that. And then let yourself snooze because your REM sleeps toward the end of the night. And that's what you'll see in black and white or blue and black or whatever colors on the screen that, oh my gosh, I truncated my REM sleep because I keep waking myself up every 10 minutes, the end of the night in the morning when I could have had an extra 20, 30 minutes REM.
0: And, and it's not quality sleep once that button goes off it's just light sleep and and light sleep really doesn't do
1: anything for you exactly it actually is probably worse because then you feel kind of groggy i mean you know i give myself about three minutes to cuddle with the dogs so i will allow that um because it's like the best time in the day um but you know what else i do and You know ben hardy is a great um he writes different blogs and he's written about this is i start setting my intention for the day so that's what a good thing to do in the morning as opposed to snoozing and light sleeping like actually wake up fine spend a few more minutes in bed cuddling with your partner or your dogs or whatever but think about okay before i check email before i get reactive what do i want to do with my day what do i want to accomplish that's ideally in service of my bigger goal you know, and 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 you can do that from that early morning creative before the critical mind hits, sets in. I find, and before you start reacting to all the the incoming in your phone. Um, so that's something that that's worthwhile doing.
0: And, and so, HRV, resting heart rate. You know, first it's important to understand your baseline, but directionally, fair to say, HR. You want HRV to be high, resting heart rate to be
1: low, not. An inverse relationship. Um, exactly. Yeah. HRV is really a very proven measure of your basically your nervous system tone. How activated as your nervous system in terms of your sympathetic, your fight or flight nervous system. And obviously you want that to be kind of at a low tone. So yeah, you can react when something is threatening to you, but it's generally at a low level. So you can think creatively, you can be more responsive and less reactive. All the things that your listeners know are associated with better health and better fulfillment in life. But one way to actually measure quantitatively How fight or flight mode are you is heart rate variability because your heart rate naturally varies. It should kind of get a little faster, a little slower, a little faster, a little slower all the time. But if your sympathetic nervous system is in high alert, it overtakes that natural variability and it just sets your heart rate. And it's like, no, go, we gotta respond, not be variable, not slow down, let's just stay at this level. So that's why it sounds counterintuitive, but you're exactly right the more variable your heart rate is, the more relaxed your nervous system is. So you want that number to be higher. Your resting heart rate is about how fit your heart is. How, you know That's why athletes have resting heart rates in the 30s or 40s, because they're, they can get as much blood pumping with just a rate of 30 to 40 times a minute, as opposed to people who aren't quite as fit and need a lot faster heart rate to get the same amount of blood pumping around.
0: And just anecdotally on HRV and, and- HRV specifically, something I found. So we recently moved our family from, from Brooklyn and Miami. And they say that in terms of most stressful life events, it's death, divorce, and then I think moving a family at number three. Uh, I don't know if there's real science behind that, but it sounds about right. Cause this hasn't exactly been, uh, we're so excited to be here. We love it here, but it's, you know, it's been stressful. And so anecdotally, when we first moved into our new place, it was kind of hot. You couldn't get like the air conditioning quite right. And so my HRV started dropping and it was in like the seventies the or sixties. And so I had an eight sleep pod cover and I like the cold, put it on. And, and what the eight sleep does, it, it cools the bed. I'm in the hundreds for HRV interesting just from that and i would say like i'm still stressed there's still a lot of crap that needs to be done we're getting our kids set up things are arriving it's like trying to figure out how to work i'm still like to be clear like the stress level has not gone away but it's almost it's like a 40 percent increase in my hrv from just cooling
1: the bed wow yeah that makes sense. Absolutely. Because it's improving your quality of sleep, which is helping your whole cortisol.
0: And what's interesting too, is I'm not sleeping again, I'm not sleeping longer. I'm actually waking up, I'm waking up, I'm sleeping like seven hours. I'm waking up at five thirty before the sun comes out. But like the numbers are the quality, to your point, the REM, my, my REM is sometimes not, my deep is always good. REM is, you know, not always there but i think it was so interesting just just temperature alone 40% better for me
1: wow no it makes a big difference but i also want to say though, like your hrv numbers are really good so even when it was bad for you that's why i say to people don't compare it to others especially with hrv i mean you can kind of compare resting heart rate we know what elite athletes are at but H- you know so there is some objective measure but hrv is so individualized so for you it's interesting like 60s 70s wasn't great For many people, probably most people, 60s or 70s is great. I have a lot of patients who are in their 20s or 30s with their heart rate variability. So it doesn't mean that they're going to die younger than you or that they're less healthy than you, but it means that's what the baseline is for them. And whatever we're going to work on, whether it's sleep hygiene, like cold or, you know, at night or doing some kind of meditation or whatever it is, we're going to say, did they get up to 40? Then that would be a win, you know? So with heart of your ability, assess it, but just assess it for yourself and don't compare it to other people.
0: I'm glad you called that out. We had Mark Sisson on the the show recently. Um, He wasn't talking about a tracker, but he was talking about cold plunge. And he had this great line where he was, he does it for four minutes and he shared that with someone he and, and Marxist is like hey when I'm 69 I want to look like Marxist like whatever he's doing it's, it's working for him although I think he eats too much meat I said that to him it doesn't work for me work, works for him but at any rate he did four minutes and he shared that with someone and, and that person who is no Marxist in terms of their their, <laughs> their level of fitness came back and said hey Mark I did seven and Mark said what? Like, what, 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 what's that getting you? Like, one, this isn't, a, this isn't a contest. And two, specifically with talking about cold plunge, that actually may be very harmful to your, to your, to your health. But to your point, it's not a race. Know your baseline. Try to improve it. Um, and so something we, we chatted about before the, the show. So you're known to many in the inner circle of health and wellness as the go-to for men's health you know, that, that's how you built your practice, your brand. And you made a point, you know, in a world, you know, where gender is fluid for many. And and, and it's, it's, and if you think about it, it's actually like an unfair distinction. You know, let's talk about mindset and how you think about, it's more about mindset, you know, quantitative versus
1: qualitative. I'll pause there and I'll let you explain how you think about that. Sure. Well, just for a quick backup, the only reason the main reason I went into integrative men's health specifically is because I found in integrative medicine, men were underserved and I was working in underserved populations, socioeconomically. And then we developed a whole integrative medicine program. And I was on faculty of integrative medicine, teaching programs. And I found none of my colleagues are seeing men like they're seeing women. What is that about? And so I started looking at why aren't we attracting men to integrative and functional medicine. And, and I started doing the research into what do men respond to in terms of making behavior change. And it's much more about goals than it is about wellness, for example. So that's where I really went with focusing on men's health. And I've done a lot of talks and I educate other integrated functional medicine clinicians around how do you build a men's health practice? Because it needs to be around not even mentioning the word wellness, mentioning what do you want to achieve and how can health help you get there? And then I've come to realize the last few years, it doesn't have to be a man. We're just talking about people who think stereotypically like the old-fashioned man. It's people who think more goal-oriented. So I even changed kind of my brand in a way. Yes, I do mental health, but really I do performance-oriented medicine for anybody. And I do wellness as well, obviously. And it's the same thing, but it's really starting from a standpoint of, okay, how can I help you perform better? What is it that you're here for? that you want to perform better in. And it's not necessarily preventing getting sick. It's around a very specific goal. So it's it's more goal oriented medicine. Um, And so the old fashioned term would have been men's health. Now it's people who think like a stereotypical male who need like some kind of goal and can't think abstractly around prevention and wellness.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important distinction in a world where we can have access to data on everything. And, you know, on one hand, it's empowering. On the other hand, sometimes it can be too much. You know, personally in our household, I, I, I'll, my take is uh, I'll pretty much do anything. I want all the, the data. My wife, Colleen, eh, maybe not all of it. You know, the, the sh- she's all for blood testing and doing what she needs to do. But 23 and Me, for example, she's like, I don't want to do it. I, I I know if there's something in there that's that's that I don't want to see, I'll be stressed about it, and I also know that that will potentially cause more damage, being stressed about it than actually having. And so, on that note, I'm I'm curious. You know, you mentioned your practice and how it's evolved. You know, in terms of your messaging, I'm curious what what's evolved in this short term frame. I'll say like pre COVID what you what you were seeing a lot of your patients to
1: say endemic
0: covid so like what what change have you seen in terms of what you're seeing in in your patients
1: yeah so for these kind of patients who again are often men but they're people who historically maybe weren't so proactive in seeking preventive care they're much more open to doing that so um and in fact, a marketing study just came out that actually men had a bigger relative increase in self-care than women did during the pandemic. So I think what the difference I've seen is, again, I say men, but people who think like the stereotypical man are much more open to looking at number one, how do I improve my connections? Which is wild. I mean, that it's unbelievable, and you've seen that from professional athletes. You've heard NBA players talk about stress and the impact of that you know, from Kevin Love talking about his anxiety to Steph Curry talking about doing breath work to recover from his injuries this season. And those are the heroes, right, for a lot of guys. Um, And then we heard guys starting to talk about, you know, you're not being macho if you have connections with other guys and start working on your social and emotional life so we're seeing the rise of groups like there's a group called every man and other groups that support social emotional wellness for men and you're hearing guys being more open to that so that's the biggest change that i've seen thankfully the letting go of that john wayne you know what that he called what we call stoic which really isn't ancient stoic philosophy of you know not sharing and not needing help and just being strong that people guys are realizing in the wake of the me too movement in the wake of pandemic that doesn't serve me or the world. Well, so I need to rethink it.
0: It's a great call out. We actually had Kevin love on the show, uh, during the pandemic and just so powerful to share his mental health struggles. You know, traditionally to your point, professional athletes, there's a history there of, of being able to handle anything about being tough about pushing through and, and look like you got to push through you got to be tough. But if, you, if you're really suffering mentally, uh, the, 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 the negative impact can be catastrophic. In some cases, we've seen a lot of suicides, Among you know, on that note, like, it's heartbreaking specifically to see, you know, you mentioned mental health and athletes, what's going on. There've been a lot of, not a lot, but too many recent suicides. Athletes in college. Horrendous. Female athletes. You had a, you had a girl at Stanford recently. There was, it's just, uh, it, it's its just, it's heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. No, it's awful, awful. So, yeah. But I, so I think there is increased openness to seeking help. Basically. I think that's the bottom line to seeking help and working with coaches and working with emotional wellness, working with connection. I think that's the biggest change.
0: And so in terms of the science, you, know, you mentioned it, it, it's such an exciting time to be in health and wellness. Is there anything you're, you're specifically paying attention to
1: that you're keeping an eye on, uh, yeah, I think it's personalization, 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 personalization. If there are any clinicians in your audience, we got, we've been saying we're gonna do that and we really haven't been, right? We've developed buckets maybe of categories. And so we kind of put patients into there, but we're not truly personalizing to the individual. And now we can do that. So we can do testing and, you know, like I'm, I'm actually a work with a genetics company called 3x4 Genetics that I love because it gives pathways, it puts genes together. It helps you identify how do I personalize the diet plan for an individual? How do I personalize the lifestyle recommendations to take advantage of any risks they might have? Looking at these data that we've talked about from your biomarkers, like is your homocysteine crazy high like Jason's was, or is there blood sugar issues, which a lot of people have to try wearing a continuous glucose monitor for a couple weeks, or are there issues with inflammation that are a real warning sign that you might not be feeling now? Um, so use some biomarkers ideally use wearables, and then really help people to personalize their approach. So to me, that's where we're going and where we need to be, because I'm so sick of doctors you know, giving 10 people the exact same program. Even integrated functional medicine, we get so proud of these programs we put together, which are great, and we want to have a detox program. but. You know we we wonder why susie did really well and beth didn't and beth gets really frustrated well we need to do a deeper dive with beth and look at her genetics and her biomarkers and tracker and figure out what does she need to be doing differently we need to really personalize care that's it's time and in
0: closing where can people find you
1: what, what are you working on right now Sure. So I see patients on my own, drspar.com, D-R-S-P-A-R.com is the best way to find me and what I'm doing. And um, I'm doing a few different things. I'm seeing patients on my own at Frank's at 1111 Wellness. I also see patients at The Well, which is a, a healthy wellness spa in New York City, um, and then I see patients via telemedicine. I'm licensed in like 23 states, so I'm happy to see telemedicine patients via consultation. I don't do primary care, but I I do integrative functional medicine consultations, especially around performance. And then I'm working, like I said, with 3X4 Genetics, and I'm working with some other really exciting companies that are doing digital and integrative medicine, either di- digital integrative medicine or integrative functional medicine for companies, helping them employees who are covered by insurance that can't necessarily afford these kind of uh, treatments that we do to have that covered by employers. So I have a lot of experience working with companies. And so that's where I'm helping uh, with some startups get integrated functional medicine to be the way everyone practices. Awesome. Are you working with Hardy as well? I am. Yes. So that's the digital one uh, that I met that I was mentioning. Yes. Yeah. It's super cool. Focused on longevity exactly focus on longevity and focus on everything you need in your palm um, with an amazing team a real health coach model so you see a provider me or frank or um, other providers and then really have somebody supporting you and have your ability to track every day how you're doing what you should be doing that day again very personalized so it's a very exciting model i love it yeah that's the one i'm really excited about um miles thank you so much Thank you. It's great. I love what you're doing and congratulations on the move. I hope it goes smoothly.
0: (laughs) We're almost there. We're almost there.